I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, some of the millions of Americans will be tuning in tonight. It'll be interesting to see how many tune in to President Biden's State of the Union address. I think it will be significantly more than last year when he gave a, an address, which is officially called a an address to a joint session of Congress. You don't get your State of the Union until you've been in for a year. But despite all the challenges we face, uh, the night is really becoming just more pomp and circumstance and, and a whole lot of political grandstanding. Uh, and is that the problem? Do we need to think again about why and how the president does a State of a Union speech and what that actually means? I think it's time to get past the headlines of all of this and think again. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, we are focused on the State of the Union today, and uh, I am very excited to have our next guest join us because I think we share something in common. We may look at things from a different point on the political compass, but when it comes to the State of the Union, I think we are lockstep. Uh, Jacob Akarak is an author and critic, writes frequently about the convergence of politics and culture, and he has a Grand Slam home run assessment of the State of the Union in the New York Times. Uh, Jacob, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're one of those uh, who agrees that the State of the Union has become one of the weirdest nights in American politics. Explain. Yeah, well, uh, the State of the Union is uh, just really uh, a prime example, not the only example, but certainly one of the most prominent ones of the way that uh, – Celebrity culture, television culture, uh, movie and screen culture, social media culture, and uh, a sort of politics driven more maybe by fandom than by actual politics have all kind of combined to create a, a really strange uh, televised spectacle uh, that uh, is kind of a pantomime of some form of government, but uh, you know, in reality, I think probably just uh, exposes a lot of the uh, undiagnosed uh, problems with uh, the the way that uh, American government, especially at the federal level, has really kind of transformed itself more into a uh, spectacle of messaging, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. than uh, any type of sort of substantive or, or, or like process-based activity. Yeah, much more of a platform than uh, actually the, the process of, of government going on. Uh, in your piece today, you, you dove into uh, Thomas Jefferson and kind of his view of uh, all of that and how that came about. And, and is there a way for us to get back to uh, maybe a, a different form of communication between the president, the Congress, <laughs> and the people? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, a, a, a sharp-eyed Twitter user uh, noted uh today that actually there 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 have been i guess a couple of interruptions and and one of them was apparently uh eisenhower at one point 
uh, maybe late in his presidency. I, I didn't have a chance to look it up. Actually, did dispatch uh, an aide to simply uh, deliver the speech uh, to Congress for him. And uh, while I'm not sure if we should necessarily be sending, you know, uh, Ron Klain or someone from the West Wing uh, up up to the Hill to deliver a speech uh, to a joint session, I, I think the idea, at least, of of turning down the the temperature on the event, uh, in some ways, maybe going back to the notion that it is, in fact, supposed to be more of a, a sort of um, uh, report on the, to coin a phrase, State of the Union, yeah. um, than it is to be a, a, a sort of ki- king's or queen's speech to lay out a whole, a whole agenda, yeah. especially with a, you know, a sharply uh, divided legislature. Um, the the, the uh, incentives for uh, either uh, grandstanding uh, or misbehavior are too great, especially when everyone is simply, you know, kind of hoping to to grab the camera for just long enough to get a moment that can be chopped and diced and repackaged for these kind of I- intensely invested micro audiences that that politicians now cultivate, just as celebrities do, you know, through social media. Uh, to a lesser extent through local media, you know, market buys, especially in a campaign year. Yeah, exactly. And they're all leading towards, uh, you know, watch this, hear how awesome I am, and send 25 bucks for my reelection campaign in the process. That's it, right. It has become so performative. And, and this year we even have one more level. So normally we have the State of the Union, of course, and then we have the response from the minority party. Uh, and this year we even have more responses. Uh, we have one uh, coming uh, from uh, someone on the far left of the Democratic Party uh, who has felt the need to deliver her own response. Uh, is this just going to roll out to where every member of Congress is going to deliver an official response to the State of the Union? I, I think, you know, in, in ways that, well, I, I can't, I've never been one who's been able to decide if, if, if politics follows popular culture or, or popular culture follows politics. But I think in the same way that, yes, every Every uh, uh, channel and entertainment company and uh, sometimes down to the individual now seems to have their own their own platform, yeah. uh, their own uh, uh, micro empire in, in in media. I think we will increasingly see um, uh, on both sides of the aisle this this rush to have sort of multiple responses from every different tendency contained within the parties. It's, it's equally, you're, you're noting um, Rashida Tlaib is um, going to be delivering a, a sort of, I don't know if we want to call it a rebuttal, but a, a response um, that is originating uh, from the, more from the left wing of the party, um, of the Democratic Party. But it's, it's equally easy to imagine, you know, the Republican Party beginning to cleave along similar lines with, you know, yeah. with, uh, a Mitt Romney or a, a Lynn Cheney delivering one type of response and a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Madison Cawthorn delivering their own response directed to their own social media audience. I mean, we can imagine this fracturing and fracturing and fracturing as, as the years go on, um, you know, again, particularly with neither party really able to kind of cobble together a, a true almost like parliamentary governing majority and everything, therefore, so, so, so tangled up in process and senatorial procedure that big things don't really get done. So all we can do is complain that about whoever's uh, opposition is pre- preventing us from, you know, enacting these kind of you know, grand legislative schemes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we need to go back to uh, no handing out of the speech before it's delivered. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think Bill Clinton has the record still for the most applause interruptions for applause, 
Uh, I think, uh, was it Jimmy Carter who gave a portion of his speech, but didn't he deliver to Congress like 33,000 words or something like that uh, in terms yeah, of... Uh, they, the- Go ahead. They've they've grown. They've 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 grown. That's certainly <laughs> the case. I do think that Bill. I do think that Bill Clinton had the record. Although, as I, I, I sort of you know jokingly tried to say in in the piece, you know, um, Clinton, uh, you know, however you view him from your own particular political ideology, um, certainly could command a room. Yes, and yeah. I think that that's 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 been something that we've seen over the last. Uh, you know, several decades. I, I really dated particularly back to you know Reagan, sure. who who really had actorly instincts, and at least especially in his first term, I think, mm. and right after his his kind of reelection was was a really commanding presence. Uh, George H. W. Bush, obviously less so, but then you know uh, 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 Clinton was a great communicator. George Bush, for all of his talent for malapropism, did have a certain. Uh, ability to command a room and command a television screen. Yeah. Uh, Barack Obama, obviously a very telegenic guy, and uh, Donald Trump, a man who I have a great many political disagreements <laughs> with, to put it very, very mildly, <laughs> nonetheless is also clearly a person who you know knows how to get up and give a speech. Yeah. And I think they were all uh, uh, they all fed off of that, and it fed into some of the worst tendencies of what the speech has become. And that was my my message in the piece is, you know, if Joe Biden does have one real quality, he is able to kind of communicate as a plain spoken and even occasionally somewhat terse guy. And if he could use those instincts and and just ratchet this thing down a little bit, I, I do think that it would be to the benefit of governance, if not immediately, you know, maybe down the road as this kind of spectacle diminishes. Yeah, absolutely. Love that insight. Jacob Bacharach, uh, author and critic. Great piece in the New York Times. We'll put that on our social pages today. And I couldn't agree more. I think President Biden should lean into his workmanlike uh, qualities. I think uh, both President Trump and President Obama did damage uh, to the process of a state of the union, uh, amongst others. And I think we have to get back to this is Again, not a state of the government. It's a state of the union. Uh, it's a message to Congress and to the American people, and we should do it different. Uh, love uh, what Jacob Bacharach had to offer there. Great insight, uh, as always. We're going to step aside. When we come back, we're going to get into another important conversation past the headlines. The opioid, opioid epidemic is touching every community. How do we get past that? Are there some non-drug ways to do it? We'll talk about it with Eric Garland coming up next. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.